The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Missing Wingman Trust is the charity that supports our Air Force families when someone is killed, injured, wounded or ill. The Missing Wingman Trust is a brilliant initiative which provides uh, support to families, Air Force families. Yeah, the Missing Wingman Trust is our only charity that uh, the whole family of the Air Force, um, well it supports that family of the Air Force. Um, not only service uh, personnel from the Air Force but also families who uh, might find it difficult in, in certain times. The trust goes wider than just uh, those service people. It, uh, it looks after that wider family, all those people associated with the Air Force, the families, the kids. A great cause for the people of, uh, people of the Air Force, both those serving and our just as important families. Being part of the military family, um, there's always uh, sadness and either health or death, and so it's lovely to know that um, family are going to be looked after. It is an opportunity for us to put something back into the Air Force family. One of our major fundraisers this year is the Wingman Brunch. We're asking people to host a meal and guests pay to attend. All the proceeds go to the Trust. It's a brilliant idea and it's a brilliant occasion. It's a nice opportunity for people to get together. It's easy. They're just going to love coming to your house, sitting around, having breakfast. The idea is not necessarily to run a brunch, but just simply to uh, hold a function, host a function, get your friends together, and not necessarily just Air Force people either. It's easy. I'd encourage everyone to have a go. It's easy. You can do it as easy, as flash, or as simple as you like. Not only is it a bit of fun, but it's a chance to uh, do something worthwhile. Great time to just meet new people and catch up with old friends. Then it's an opportunity for all of us to uh, take part and to put something back into the service. Details, decorations, resources and recipes are on our website. You can make a real difference to Air Force families when they need help most.
Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today uh, we've got a really interesting international show talking about a Canadian project which uh, has definite Kiwi connections, and that's the restoration of Hawker Typhoon JP843. I'd like to introduce the guests for the show today. We've got the project leader, Ian Slater. Hi, Ian. Hi, Dave. And we've got Bruce Slater. Hi, Bruce. Yes, I'm here. And we've got Graham Sutherland. Hi, Graham. Yeah, hi Dave, here in New Zealand, yes. Um, so Ian, can you tell me, uh, how did this project come about to start with, and, and what was your inspiration to restore a typhoon? <laughs> it's a, a long story, Dave. Um, it actually starts, uh, interestingly, with uh, an image. It was a painting when I was 12 that was in a book. Uh, I'd been following World War II aviation for a couple of years, and my grandmother gave me a book, and in the middle of it was basically a centerfold of a typhoon, which I'd never seen before. It was just... It floored me. It was such an amazing-looking aircraft. Right. So uh, kind of stuck with it and started uh, researching restoration and seawater recoveries and things like that to figure out what it would, uh, what it would take to do. And uh, here we are, uh, many moons later. That was in the, the early 90s, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a long road to get to the point where we actually have enough to start something. Well, where did you actually start? How did, how did you come across a project? Uh, it's got a couple beginnings, actually. I started uh, basically on the realization that there wasn't uh, substantial remains of typhoons in any one location or uh, easily recoverable aircraft. Uh, I started searching for drawings and uh, technical data that would allow the reconstruction or new build of a typhoon. So that took a lot of years and was very discouraging, just like trying to find the actual uh, component or complete aircraft. Um, but uh, I succeeded in 2009 with the acquisition of a, a fairly significant volume of drawings, and that was enough to push forward. I'd, I'd actually been discouraged for a while and started working on a hurricane, so um, right. along with the drawings, I, uh, I contacted a fellow who had a Typhoon firewall, and uh, he was looking for hurricane parts, so I, I traded some of my hurricane parts for the firewall. Uh, shortly after that... Uh, Roger Marley put his collection up for sale, and uh, I jumped on the chance to get that. So now we've we've really got enough data and uh, components for the aircraft to to make a reasonable start towards reconstruction. Oh, that's fantastic! So um, your your role you're the team leader, aren't you? I, I yeah, self appointed. <laughs> uh, I would say very much, very much the team leader. <laughs> um, I I'm a structures guy. With this project, when I was quite young, I realized that the, the biggest cost in doing any of this would really be labor. To have a team hired and paid to put together an aircraft as rare as this and with so many hurdles to jump over. Um, I, I've trained since I was uh, 
uh, 17, 18 years old as aircraft structures. So I'm a metal guy first, and I guess the team later second. Right, right, okay. And Bruce, tell me uh, your part in the in the project. Well, um, I, I, I'm Ian's father. I have been watching his progress for, for quite some time. And uh, my background is uh, in 3D CAD modeling. So, okay. when, so when he came up with uh, some challenges that, uh, that needed uh, some help with, I uh, couldn't help but volunteer. Uh, <clears throat> mostly around uh, or initiated by uh, Ian taking a scan of, uh, of uh, the, the typhoon, or pardon me, uh, typhoon wing, um, and then trying to convert that data into something usable for manufacture. So, right. um, I'd, 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 Ian would have to make more comment about the wing scan. That was a whole project unto itself. I'm just taking the raw data and uh, and uh, compiling it with uh, with existing uh, or known drawing uh, parts drawings. Okay. Well, can you actually go into that a bit, uh, Ian? About the wing scan itself? Yes. Yeah. Sure. It was actually. Uh, I can't remember the year now, but um, I heard that MN-235, that's the sole survivor uh, typhoon, uh, which belongs to the Royal Air Force Museum in Hendon. I had heard the rumor uh, quite early on that it was coming to Canada, and it just floored me because it, it closed the gap for any kind of measurements that we need uh, to, to help with this project. Um, I contacted the museum uh, once it arrived in Canada after the D-Day ceremonies and uh, they were more than willing to help out between the, the museum in Ottawa and the Royal Air Force Museum. We made arrangements to show up with a scan team to do a uh, uh, full 3D scan, a very highly accurate 3D scan of the wing. Uh, purpose for that was because we have limited wing drawings and right. very few uh, wing components survive. Um, so we got a, a scan team in there after some a little bit of work back and forth and making sure the timings lined up and we we took the scan and ended up with a, an amazing point cloud uh, capture of the entire wing for MN-235 which has a, approximately nine hours of flight time so it was fairly straight. Oh wow, I didn't realize it was that small an, uh, amount of hours on the aircraft. It, it incredibly limited. I, I believe it uh, stopped flying after a small incident. Uh, it was on loan to the States, I believe, in 1944. They they did some tests with it and made a couple little changes internally. And um, uh, after the incident, I believe they uh, they basically stopped dealing with it. Right, right. What's the actual backstory for that going on loan to Canada? Uh, I don't know too much about how it ended up here. I, I do know that it was... Um, an amazing gesture from the Royal Air Force Museum to loan such a rare aircraft and have it flown uh, across the uh, the ocean to come to Canada. I, I, all I do know is that it was done for the D-Day uh, ceremonies here. Right, right. And that's on public display, is it? It is. It's going back to, um, to the UK, uh, I believe, spring, summer 2017. So it's just about done its tour here. Right. Right. Well, that's just fantastic timing that that worked out for you then, isn't it? Oh, Florida. We're still hoping to get uh, an, at least one more trip out to it, uh, depending what kind of um, data we can still capture. There's there's a couple options available to us, but having it so close, it would be a real shame not to capture everything that we can. Right, right. Now, whereabouts is the typhoon at the moment? It's in the uh, Canadian Air Museum in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Sorry. 
Yep, yep. And and you guys are sort of on the other side of the country, aren't you? We're about as far away as you can get. We're on uh, Vancouver Island in British Columbia, so <laughs> it's a bit of travel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit closer than going to London, though, I guess. So. <laughs> it's about halfway, actually. <laughs> halfway right. in between, yeah. <laughs> actually, when you put it, put it into that sort of... Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's amazing how big Canada is. Eh? I think we forget that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of land to cross. We were really fortunate uh, that one of the premier scanning companies is very close to uh, Ottawa. Um, they came from Quebec and met us there in the morning, and it was a one day scan, but it was uh, very impressive what they got done on it. The the, the detail on the on the scan uh, model itself is is truly amazing. Uh, the level of detail it's. Uh, down to the point where you can see each uh, and every rivet in the in the wing structure itself, as including overlaps in uh, in the sheathing. Uh, just the detail is just uh, just so amazing, considering that it's so such a large uh, component. Wow, that's amazing! It's absolutely amazing. The the digital technology these days, the modern technology, is sort of I think that's one of the big things in a lot of these old aircraft coming back and, and old vehicles of any sort that are coming back now uh, in restorations. It's it's really brought it on, hasn't it? Uh, I'd say uh, so. The, uh, reverse engineering uh, mm. using 3D scan is what you're suggesting? or yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, for the most part, small parts, yes. Larger components such as a wing is... is, is Stretching the envelope of uh, of what can be done, um, the the scan itself, the the STL file is uh, is just an enormous file that is uh, that takes considerable computer power just to uh, to slice it up and uh, and and make it something that we can uh, uh, use as a as a manufactured uh, uh, part, you know, or parts uh, plural. Right. Right. And of course, uh, we've got Graham on the line too, Graham Sutherland here in New Zealand, and you're working on the uh, on the drawing side of things as well, aren't you, Graham? Yes, I've been working a little bit on the fuselage uh, frames from the cockpit to the tail section um, and the monocoque section. Um, the uh, Ian Ian has to be able to create some formers to uh, be inside the material gauge thickness um, to bend and form the. The components, the, the yep. frames, they're in four pieces each one. But um, we to generate those forms, it's quite easy and digitally. Well, not exactly easy, but it, there have been challenges. But um, now I've been doing some drawings just to create the um, the formers for doing the, the hard work that Ian's yet to do. Right. I've also been doing quite a bit of research on the on his family history and on his military history as well. I have his military records from the um, from the New Zealand archives, so um, it's been very helpful too. Now this is this is Peter Price, the pilot that uh, correct that crashed crashed the aircraft, wasn't it? Yes. So tell me tell me about him. He was born in Remuera in Auckland, sixth uh, of March, nineteen twenty. Was it nineteen twenty four? So he went in. Uh, 1942, he went in for some uh, interviews and, and what have you. He was still at school. I think he was sort of finished the sixth form year, but had transferred to Napier. He worked in the bank for the rest of that year, and he was called up um, later on, perhaps when he was 17 or so, 
and went through training in New Zealand for two years. Right. Or for a whole year, basically, and then over to England at the end of 43. And once he'd, he'd done his operational training, he ended up with uh, 609 Squadron? That's correct. He, he only did um, 10 sorties with 609 Squadron. That's how young he was when yep. he uh, had his incident. Um, but he had spent quite some time over in England and in various training units um, and tactical training units as well just to get skilled up and then um, was out of Thorny Island in the south coast and they headed off to France which is directly south from, from that uh, base. Yep. And they used some of the uh, inland bases in France for uh, about a month there as they were attacking the uh, tanks and armed at locations, fortifications within France. And what what was the uh, the sortie that he was on when he actually uh, was killed in the crash? They were um, the squadron was attacking a, a group of tanks and um, flak artillery um, that was sort of in a retreating mode, um, and that was um, southwest of Cairns um, inland, not very far. And um, it was a heavily clouded day. It was raining. Um, and the conditions were quite poor for attacking ground-based ground, um, elements. Yep. Um, he, we believe he was circling around and um, got hit by flak, flak and was able to um, bail out and parachuted to safety. But um, he landed in a deserted village. Well, we don't think it was totally deserted because um, we believe there were some Germans there. So um, the villagers, when they were returned, um, they found him there close to his parachute, and um, that was the end for a brave young man. Oh, okay. So, is it thought that he was actually murdered, or was it the was it the the landing that killed him, or was he wounded in the air, or is it known? Uh, no, it's not known. But I'd like to believe that he was just trying to defend himself um, from land-based infantry that were right. had taken over the village, um, right. and they were retreating, so they weren't taking any prisoners unfortunately okay okay yeah very very sad but it's uh, it, it is a great kiwi connection um having a, a new zealand pilot um having flown this aircraft and uh, we've got a, we've got you as a kiwi on board graham and we've got the other graham graham allen uh, is also a kiwi but he's up in canada yeah it's it, it's quite a it's quite a neat uh thing for us kiwis to have this connection to the aircraft and uh uh but it's also a very important type to, to Canada, isn't it, Ian? Absolutely. I, I think a lot of the Commonwealth nations that flew typhoons are, are overlooked. And because it's a British fighter that really never served anywhere else, it's always considered British pilots. But um, there's a huge amount of uh, Canadian volunteers, Australian, Kiwis, Belgium, people from all over the world flew these aircraft. Even uh, we've got records of, of, some, excuse me, of some Americans that uh, were flying it. So... It really oh. is uh, an aircraft that was flown by a lot of different nationalities. Um, Canadian squadrons 438, 439, and 440 all flew uh, dedicated. They're part of the Canadian wing flying typhoons. Um, so there's uh, quite a number of, of Canadian pilots that flew in those units, but also with RAF squadrons, uh, such as 6 Squadron and basically any other one that you can find, there's Canadians. Uh, I believe an exception, you might be able to correct me on this, but I believe the exception could be uh, 486 Squadron. Not sure if they uh, they had any Canadians fly with them or not. That I'm not sure of. I think that the um, 486 by that stage just had New Zealanders on, on 
uh, in terms of the pilots. So I, I'm not I'm not certain if there are anyone other than New Zealanders uh, flying, but. Yeah, 486 was a very famous um, New Zealand fighter squadron. Probably not quite as famous as its slightly older brother, the 485 Spitfire Squadron. But uh, yeah, they did some amazing things in their typhoons and their tempests during the war. And I've had the pleasure of meeting a few guys that served with uh, 486. And they always have fascinating stories to tell. In fact, on that note, you must have met a few veterans along the way with this project, I would imagine. Met quite a few uh, since I was quite young, actually. And... uh maybe a little bit delusional on the time frame uh, Colonel Andret he was a, uh, a retired 438 pilot in uh, Montreal, Quebec and I think I met him when he was 84 and just an amazing guy he was in Eindhoven when the uh, the Germans attacked and uh, there's a painting circulating somewhere I haven't found it for years but um, it's a picture of him his aircraft was hit when he was taxiing he jumped out, pulled his sidearm out and was shooting with his sidearm at the uh, Focke-Wulf 190s trying to kill him <laughs> Oh, so, wow. Some unbelievable guys out there, and just amazing stories that they, they tell you. And you wouldn't believe them if you, if you didn't meet them face to face. It's just so, so brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's going to be quite amazing to see the return of the, a, a typhoon because you actually intend to fly it, don't you? That's the intent. Uh, everything is being done to airworthy standards. It's, it's not an easy task, and uh, um, that's the reason why this really hasn't been attempted before, is because. Anybody that's in the uh, Warbird restoration game knows how expensive and how ridiculous this idea is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, a, a few years ago, people were saying the same thing about mosquitoes, and look at that now. I mean, you know, they, they said, oh, you can never put a mosquito back in the air. Well, there's now two of them flying, and there's going to be another one in another couple of months, so um, it can be done. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think when people say it can never be done, they're thinking it's not financially responsible i think that's exactly what they're saying because anything can be done especially given the technology that we have today for reverse engineering and um and pulling uh, geometry out of components that are 70 years old sitting on the surface or buried under mud so it can be done it's just it takes people that are absolutely dedicated to that aircraft type and not somebody that is trying to create a museum of various aircraft type it's a it's a lifelong dedication to be able to see something like this through. Right, absolutely. Now, in the in the process of restoring this aircraft, you you reverse engineering components and parts, and uh, you know having to start from scratch with some of the some of the bits and pieces. What are the most difficult challenges that you've got in terms of that? Uh, well, I'd separate that into two, or the aircraft into two categories. I'd, uh, the first one being the airframe and the second one being the engine. The engine is by far the biggest complication for this. Um, right. The airframe itself, uh, components of the wings, and even some smaller brackets and fittings within the fuselage are huge hurdles that we have to overcome. Um, wings, obviously, having more issues than the fuselage. Um, but the fact is that when Typhoons are scrapped, basically everything of scrap value being aluminum was was pulled out of them and the cockpit survived somehow elevators survived in in larger quantities um which is the exception to the rule but the wings were basically pulled off at the the joints and scrapped from there so all of the steel fittings that's can that are contained in the wing were hauled off with them and are very difficult to find there are um 
steel straps at the dihedral joint on the typhoon's wing that are uh, incredibly important to the restoration, and there's no data uh, for the forward spar ones anyway, and uh, very, very few survivors of them. So when you start breaking it down, it's not necessarily a major assembly that's a problem, it's the individual subcomponents of that major assembly uh, that are creating issues for us. Right, okay. And you mentioned the the challenge of the engine. There's, um, I mean, it's quite a quite a uh, difficult engine. Even back during the war, it was it had its challenges. Uh, the, the Napier Sabre, and now there's only a few projects in the world that are coming together that would actually want to use a Napier Sabre. So, are you are you working with the other people who are, um, you know, work like like Kermit Weeks has got a, a Tempest, which he hopes to put the Sabre engine in, and and you, are you sharing ideas, sharing that sort of thing? It's pretty early on. We are working with them and we are in contact with them um, uh, until there starts to be uh, progress with disassembly and, and things like that. There's really not a lot to share, but uh, there is open communication between uh, the, the team working on Kermit's sabers. Right, right. I mean, just it, it's mind-boggling to think that you could even find the components for a, a saber these days. I mean, they weren't really used after the war for anything, were they? They were used as target tugs in Tempests until, I believe, 1955. Okay. Uh, and I've actually talked to a couple of guys that were uh, were uh, dealing with uh, maintaining the target tugs, and when they retired them and pulled them out of their um, their locations, they just took the sabers they had as spares and hit them with a hammer and dumped them in the ocean or creeks or canals or anything. <laughs> wow. But uh, uh, as far as spares go, very limited. There's um, There's hope that people will come forward that, have components because they do survive. They are out there, uh, but they're in private collections or in people's uh, barns or warehouses that just don't know what's in there and how important it is to uh, to us. <laughs> but right. uh, ultimately, we haven't selected a route to go with the Sabre yet. There's a few routes to go, and one is new manufacture, which is obviously the most expensive and problematic one. Um, but really, new manufacture of uh, at least the bulk of the components for a Sabre alleviates all the issues down the road on trying to keep them flying. If you went down that route, would you try to get some sort of consortium together to, to make several at once rather than just one engine? Because uh, surely if you made, say, 10 um, that go to different projects and, and you've got your spare engines as well, wouldn't that work out cheaper in the long run? Oh, absolutely. The design and... Uh, and um, construction of one component is always the most expensive part if you're especially with new technology if you're going to make uh, 10 engines it's going to be a lot cheaper right, uh, right. the cost will be absorbed in the first one uh, but it also it it provides spares so if you're going to make 10 engines you'd make 20 crankshafts or sorry it's got two crankshafts so <laughs> you'd make 40 <laughs> crankshafts you'd have spares for everything that you're producing right 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 and again, it's it's another one of those things that can be done. I mean, here in New Zealand, they're, they're building World War One engines. There's there's at least two companies building World War One engines from scratch, um, and you know, and those things are flying in aircraft now. So, um, engines can be built from scratch. And it, 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 I think maybe ten or twenty years ago, people would say, "Oh, you'd never do it." But as you said earlier, it's really just you. If you've got the money, you can do these things now. Oh, absolutely, yeah, but it is money, and it is uh, absolute lunacy to consider it, but that's really what I'm about, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the other thing, too, in the meantime, bef before you even get to that stage, um, 
you're still restoring a historic aircraft, which will look fantastic sitting in the hangar anyway, won't it? I mean, it's it's a it's a historic museum piece anyway. Even if you never get to the stage of putting an engine in it that can fly, um, what you're doing is still an amazing piece of work. Well, and that's uh, I hate to admit it, but that is the the fallback is. Um, if for whatever reason it's we're unable to complete this uh, and have it fly within my lifetime, what we have completed is built to airworthy standard, is certified, and is ready should an engine become available. Um, I I really unless there's some sort of um, horrific accident, I cannot see the airframe not being complete. It's and I don't want to say there's nothing to it. There's a lot to it, but it's um, it's well within reason to produce the airframe. Um, and there are options on the table. Not that there are ideal options, but a Rolls-Royce Griffin uh, has the same approximate power, has the same approximate dimensions and weight as a Sabre. So if you wanted to see a Typhoon fly and the airplane's done, there's a lot of Griffins around that uh, one way or another could be fitted to the airframe to make it fly. It just wouldn't sound right. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, you you want that sound too, don't you? I mean, that, that was a unique sound. <laughs> Well, and we want to have an airworthy typhoon, and it really, it'll be a typhoon, but with an addition or with a different power plant in it. It's not what our goal is. It's just an yeah. alternate plan. Yeah, absolutely. So when it's uh, when it's complete, uh, will it be based in uh, Vancouver? A uh, little too early to tell. I, I would like to see this aircraft remain in Canada. That's uh, Basically, my dying wish is that it remains a Canadian aircraft, and it'll be donated right. to uh, to a national museum that's going to continue to uh, operate it, assuming that it's operating when when I'm gone. Right. Um, but because of our New Zealand connection with it, we're discussing um, an idea where we take all of the original components that we have from our Typhoon collection here. Once they're done and reverse engineered, and uh, we've produced new parts to make our our aircraft complete, uh, we'd like to assemble. The original components for a static display cockpit section and uh, have that delivered and displayed in New Zealand. Wow, that would be fantastic. That would be so so appreciated. That would be awesome. Well, there's so little representation for the aircraft that um, I mean, uh, ideally, it'd be nice to see every nation that had a, a contributing part in Typhoon operations have an aircraft. Um, but we have a very strong Kiwi connection with Peter Price dying in the aircraft that uh, it makes it very well worthwhile to make sure that there's something to show for uh, for what we're doing in New Zealand as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's brilliant. Really, really neat. T- tell us about the uh, open day display that you uh, put on, Graham. Oh, no, mine was up at Ardmore, yes. I just had two pin boards with photos of, the, of typhoons in general and photos of the project in particular and some of um, the pilot, Peter Price, um, and, and postcards to give away just so that people could um, have something that they could go back to our websites or the Facebook page with. It was just more an opening um, in New Zealand here about our project and uh, about Peter Price, an Aucklander, and um, it uh, was ideal for a, a D-Day display anyway. Absolutely. And, and you had an open day too, Ian, up at uh, Vancouver. We did. Uh, we had uh, um, Harry Hardy, DFC uh, from 440 Canadian Squadron, uh, came over and we're incredibly grateful for him making the trip. He's over in Vancouver. Uh, he had just turned 94 years old the day before. We <laughs> we found that out when he was here, actually. We would have had a cake or something for him. But um, <laughs> we, we invited, uh, it was 
it was by invite only. So we invited a lot of uh, professionals and interested parties in the warbird world to uh, to come and check out what we're doing and and how crazy we really are. Um, <laughs> Harry came uh, dressed to the nines and gave us a, an amazing talk on his time with typhoons and uh, kept us all laughing throughout the the event. It, it went far better than we had planned it to. It was just an amazing day. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, we've got uh, on the 16th next weekend, next Saturday in Campbell River, uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia, we will be attending uh, Wings and Wheels um, uh, with the cockpit section. It'll be the first time we actually take it out of the facility. We're pretty guarded with it, but it's uh, it's a local event, and we're expecting uh, several hundred people to, to attend. So uh, we'd like to try and get more people involved and uh, aware of Hawker Typhoon operations and the crews and uh, the risks that they took and the sacrifices they made. That's actually a really good point because, you know, everybody uh, these days, young, younger generations particularly, they know about the Spitfire, uh, and to a lesser degree, they know about the Hurricane. But the likes of the, the the Typhoon and the Tempest have largely been forgotten, haven't they? They have. It's quite sad, and it's it's difficult to bring them to light because there's not a huge amount of interest with new generations. Um, it's uh, it's difficult to grab their attention and, and have them listen without going to events and having them actually see uh, the size of this aircraft and I mean when they compare it to something modern at an air show it's, it looks incredibly primitive um, yeah. but it, it, it kind of tells the story of I mean these guys that were anywhere from 18 to 25 very young men that jumped in a machine that had uh, 2200 plus horsepower raced across the channel at 400 plus miles an hour went through two or three different levels of flak and came home it, it was a very tough aircraft too wasn't it it could take a lot of punishment it yeah absolutely it was uh, that's what made it excel as ground attack and that's part of my uh, attraction to it aside from just it, its looks uh, when i really got into it as i um started getting older uh, I'm really interested in mechanical design and things like that, and uh, the Hawker design and manufacturing technique for this aircraft bridged the gap between their tube structure and their monocoque uh, stress skin aircraft. And uh, it, you break apart their tube structure in the cockpit area, and it's just beautiful. It's it's amazingly strong um, and simple to fix. Everything's accessible because the uh, the cowl panels are quickly removed. Uh, for an aircraft as complex as this one in the front end, anyway, it was. Uh, um, designed really well for maintainers to be able to get in there, do what they had to do, and get them back in the air. Right, right. Now, now this particular Typhoon is the type that has the bubble canopy, isn't it? It doesn't have the car door type. Well, it uh, depends how far back you look. Uh, it was delivered in September of '43 to 197 Squadron as a car door Typhoon. Oh. Yeah, and it uh, it served uh, an amazing amount of time with 197. I, I think uh, February was its last flight with them. Um, by then, 197 was getting uh, more modern typhoons uh, with the uh, the bubble canopy on them, and it was pretty well sidelined. It uh, it then went for modifications, uh, two different outfits, I think. Gloucester was one of them, and um, it was fitted with uh, rocket projectile mods and the bubble canopy, and then ultimately delivered to 609 on the 8th of uh, June 1944, just after D-Day. Well, I have to say, I had no idea that the older type typhoons went through a process of being upgraded to the, the bubble canopy. I, I didn't know they did that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were taking, uh, even our serial number, the earliest typhoons, they were taking those and modifying them throughout the war. Oh, that's fantastic. And you mentioned the rockets too. That's another interesting piece there with the typhoon. It would have been 
the best known of the RAF aircraft types that, that used the ground attack rockets, wasn't it? I suppose so. Yeah, 609 was using rockets. Uh, if you look at the uh, the Canadian squadrons, they were using nothing but uh, bombs, 250 to 1,000 pounders. Um, okay. So it really depended on the unit. But uh, the, the rockets made them famous. I mean, when you're searching through Google, a lot of the photos and images and, and references are rocket-related. Uh, what were the advantages of the Typhoon over the Hurricane that it was designed to replace? Uh, speed... I'd say some maneuverability, um, power and load uh, capacity, armament, just phenomenal. So it really was a, a whole new generation after the, the Hurricane, wasn't it? It was designed to replace the Hurricane, uh, but it was designed as an interceptor, a, a role that it actually failed at. Um, and it, it failed because of its thick wing. It just couldn't maneuver at higher altitudes. Uh, but it was the British uh, first 400-mile-an-hour fighter and was pressed into service to catch... Uh, Fockwolf 190s off the coast because it was the only thing that could do it. Right. Um, uh, Roland Beaumont was actually uh, one of the, the men that uh, really pushed for it to be uh, a ground attack aircraft and he proved it and it worked uh, just amazingly well. Um, and of course, the, uh, because of its failure with its thick wing as an interceptor, uh, Hawkers was working on uh, a new design to uh, provide a, a thinner wing, which ultimately became the Tempest. Right, right. The other, uh, the other thing that the Typhoons, their speed uh, had an advantage over was catching the V1 flying bombs, wasn't it? Not so famously as the Tempest, but they could, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, what other stories have you come across, particularly from um, veterans, like personal stories of flying them? Is there anything that sort of sticks out? Um, I should have invited Cam Wallace. He's another one of our team members. His father was a 193... Uh, uh, squadron typhoon pilot and uh he can tell stories a heck of a lot better than i can but uh, um i know he he has two stories that he's told me um, regarding his father's uh typhoon operations the first one was i believe he was taking off and he had um uh external fuel tanks mounted to his aircraft i don't recall what went wrong with it but basically he didn't get off the ground and he uh, uh jettisoned his fuel tanks and skidded off the end of the runway uh, when the aircraft came to a stop, his fuel tanks caught up to him, hit the aircraft, and exploded and, and caught on fire. Uh, apparently, his account of the story was that he thought he was a goner, but um, uh, it was believed it was a couple of Australian guys that were there. They ran into the flames, wow. cut open the cock, and saved his life. So it wasn't just in combat that typhoons were <laughs> problematic. It was pretty well everywhere. Um, and, I mean, things were pushed into service so quickly that uh, you couldn't get around that kind of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Another story from, from Cam's father was uh, uh, he was, and I don't quote me on this, Cam would have to tell you, but I believe it was the attack on Rommel. Um, he was having a meeting and, and typhoons came in and uh, Cam's father was uh, told to go around and hit them again and flak was incredibly heavy over the site. And he didn't want to do it, but he went around and hit them again and he took a 37 millimeter flak shell just in behind the uh, the uh, uh, instrument board, which is of course where the oil tank is on the typhoon. And the recollection he had was that uh, he could see the ring around the instruments glowing because it set fire to the oil immediately. Ooh. And he was he was burning up. He had uh, the wherewithal to, to pull up and try and get some altitude out of his aircraft before he bailed out. And he was on fire inside the cockpit while he's doing this. He got some height on it, uh, tried to get the canopy open, fought with it. Um, he was a pretty switched-on guy, so he, he kind of jerry-rigged the, 
the emergency jettison assembly, got it open, uh, slid out onto the wing and uh, tried to get free but was hit by the tailplane, broke both of his legs and finally got free to open air. And uh, I guess his memory was that it, it just felt so good on his face because he was so burnt and he couldn't open his eyes because his eyes were melted shut when he oh, realized that he had to open his parachute. <laughs> so he, he pulled the cord, opened his parachute, came down to the ground and uh, and got leaning up against the tree and pried his eyes open so he could see again, only to find that there was a couple Germans sitting right there in a, in a motorcycle. So they, they found him. They walked over to him, grabbed him by his broken legs and arms and threw him in the sidecar and drove him off. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Just yeah. unbelievable stories. I think... Um, Further down the track with your project, I think I'll have to get you guys back on, and we'll have to get Cam on to tell a few stories as well. It would be great. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a team of seven members now. We have um, um, Graham Sutherland, uh, Bruce Slater, myself, uh, Graham Allen, of Cam Wallace. Uh, we also have Martin Cherniff in Victoria. He's another structures guy, and uh, um, we've just added a new team member out of uh, France. Another uh, CAD designer, actually, uh, Nicholas Walter. Right, okay. And you mentioned um, Graham Allen there, and he's another Kiwi connection. Um, we did hope to have him on this call, but he's he uh, hasn't made it. Can you tell us a little bit about what he's doing? <laughs> uh, Graham Allen is my go-to guy. When I've got a problem, I go to him. Um, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he even functions. But there's things that I have been researching for years, possibly even more than a decade in some cases, and I discuss it with Graham, and within days he has an answer or a solution. Wow. Sourcing data, uh, talking to people, and he's much more personable than I am, but he, uh, he finds a way to get stuff that I didn't even know existed, and he does it incredibly quickly. Um, so it, he's basically my go-to researcher. When I, I just can't hack it anymore, I go to him. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's also... Uh, basically taking over all of our research for uh, the propulsions and system side of the typhoon uh, because it's not my strong point by any means he knows a lot more what he's dealing with there and um, and because of his amazing ability to uh, to seek out data and components and whatever we need well Bruce what are the things that you've learned along the way and and what stories have you picked up on well, um, I'm actually not from uh, aerospace industry. I'm a, a boat right uh, by trade. Um, about 20 years experience doing uh, 3D computer modeling. Um, I think uh, with Ian uh, uh, taking the scan on the on the wing, I just couldn't help but uh, volunteer. Uh, <laughs> I, I just it was such a, a huge challenge and uh, uh, I just I couldn't resist right. um, I've uh, being Ian's father I've uh, I've seen his uh, enthusiasm uh, and uh, and just uh, get go <laughs> throughout his whole life and it's just uh, it's accelerated and uh, uh, he, you just can't slow this guy down when he's got the project that he's uh, so enamored with that's fantastic. What about Ian as a young boy? As a young boy. Oh, thanks, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I a young boy. Yeah, that's a, that's a bad question. Um, well, I know I, he's he's a driven he's driven. There's no question about that. I have a photograph of him in uh, one of my boat shops. Uh, I think he was three years old 
wearing a tool belt trying to climb a ladder to get up into a boat uh, doing like dad you know it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um uh he's certainly the driving force on this and uh i'm i'm really pleased to be a uh, a part of uh of such a such an important uh and historic uh, project well that that's great and i'm really pleased to be able to help get the word out there for you guys um get a little bit of recognition and and uh educate uh, you know the the masses out there um as as well as this podcast we've also got a a thread that's been running on the wings over new zealand forum for a wee while which both the grahams have been contributing information to and it's uh, it's always interesting to see little bits of news or little snippets come up on there and uh, i i know that there's a lot of people out there in the in the aviation world that do appreciate the typhoon and they certainly are interested in this project so it's, it's fantastic to have you guys on the show and it's it's great to be able to you know help you guys get a little bit of the, the word out there about what you're doing too. Hmm. Well, it's sincerely appreciated. I mean, we just talking to people and uh, trying to solve problems. We don't necessarily tell them exactly what we're doing, but when they find out that we're restoring a typhoon, if they've ever heard of it, they know what we're talking about and they get really excited about it. It's 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 impressive how much um, enthusiasm it generates with people. It's just because I don't think anybody believed it would ever happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, and you know it's. I, I I fully believe that this will happen. I I think that you guys are the the really you're a really good team. Um, just listening to the to the stories that are coming out in this uh, interview, and the and the fact that you guys know what you're doing, you're driven, you're going to get it done, and um, there's a lot of hope that this will be the first flying typhoon. I hope so. That's our goal, and we'll uh, we'll push to make that happen. I I think one other thing that I can add. Um would be that we're we're always looking for sponsors that because we're a uh, a limited company we're not a charity we just uh, have a, a not-for-profit business plan um, we're looking for sponsors and basically uh, in trade for marketing and uh, and uh, some um, logos and things at all of our events we're looking for uh, machine shops and and foundry anybody that, that uh, has a business or works with a business that thinks that they'd be interested in and in, uh, supports project even if it's for the smallest little bit it's a huge help to what we're doing that's a really good point and i'm glad that you mentioned that and are you also looking for more volunteers to join the team uh you know full-time working with you guys or uh, we can't uh, bring too many people on or it becomes and i don't want to say it when you have too many people and not enough jobs it's uh, it's a bit of a problem Right. Uh, right now, our team is about as big as it needs to be, with the exception of uh, possibly somebody with a CNC machine shop that wants to be involved in it. <laughs> but um, um, for just having members for assembly and things like that, if you're looking at structures assembly, uh, right now we've got two uh, experienced structures guys with very limited uh, production. When we get to the assembly point, um, we'd definitely be open to people that are experienced and uh, and know what they're dealing with with this type of thing and evaluate it at that time. Excellent. So how can people help? The listeners out there, how can they help with the project? Uh, there's a couple of ways they can help. Uh, the easiest thing to do is uh, check out our Facebook page or our website and, and share it to your heart's content. Make as many people aware of it um, as possible. Uh, just spreading the word. Um, other ways are financial assistance, uh, either through purchasing products that we have for sale or just through donations. Uh, we have a GoFundMe campaign. 
Um, and we also have a web store uh, titled Shop on our website, uh, typhoonlegacy.com. And uh, any one of those contributions goes 100% towards it. It's basically used for material purchases and specialty services that we don't do in-house here, which uh, come down to machining and uh, coordinate measuring and things like that. Right. And and tell people uh, the website. Where can they find your website? Our website is uh, www.typhoonlegacy.com. Right. And, uh, of course, you mentioned you're on Facebook as well. They can um, find you on Facebook as Typhoon Legacy, can't they? Uh, Typhoon Legacy, or if they uh, do a search for Typhoon JP843. Excellent. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, for coming on the show. It's been fascinating to hear about the project, and I wish you the best for the future with it, and and I'm sure that you guys are going to soon, fairly soon have some pretty interesting results. So uh, it's it's a, a really exciting project. I'm, I'm so keyed up about it. I think it's fantastic. I yeah, appreciate that. Been, thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, Dave. No, thanks, thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Dave. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.